talking to Catherine Angel, author of Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again. Catherine Angel is the author of Unmastered, Most Difficult to Tell, and Daddy Issues. She directs the MA in Creative and Critical Writing at Birkbeck, University of London, and has a PhD from the University of Cambridge. In this elegant searching book spanning science and popular culture, pornography and literature, debates on Me Too, consent and feminism, Catherine Angel challenges our assumption about women's desire. Why, she asks, should they be expected to know their desires? And how do we take sexual violence seriously when not knowing what we want is key to both eroticism and personhood? Thanks for taking the time to chat, Catherine. Sure, happy to be here. I want to start off by sort of making a clarification for the listener, as you similarly do at the start of the book for your readers, which is to address that this conversation is not intended to encompass all aspects um, of gender and sexuality. It's largely heteronormative. There are other great scholars doing the work to shape this conversation outside of the sphere and is less so explored in this book. Um, You begin the book by acknowledging the ways in which contemporary society emphasizes female consent. Yes means yes, no means no. You explore the limitations in defining consent in this way. Basically, you're asking why should a woman always know what she wants and kind of criticizing a narrative that demands the certainty. So there's this sort of existential behind your interrogation. You know, the idea of why should a woman have to fully understand herself, arguably a thing that is like all of our life's work, um, in order to access pleasure. You refer to this as the heavy burden of speech on women, but you also emphasize the power of female narrative. And I think someone hearing this argument, you know, who is potentially disagreeing with this argument would ask how to reconcile that. Like, yes, women should not be expected to carry this burden of speech, but also woman's voice is fundamental. Um, And so I I, want to ask you how, how you would respond to that interrogation. Sure. I mean, I think it's, it's really important that um, that women are allowed, obviously, to speak, and that we should be absolutely, um, you know, making space for women's voices in the public sphere, and for women to speak about their experience of life and including of sexual violence. But my reservation, especially in the wake of Me Too, was about feeling that um, it was almost as if women had a duty to tell their kind of, you know, terrible, traumatic stories in order that a sexual culture might sort of be improved. Um, And, you know, the reason that disconcerts me so much is that I think it repeats this gesture that we we tend to fall into, even in very well-meaning contexts, which is to place the burden on women to kind of bear the ethical problem, to sort of articulate the ethical difficulty and to speak and act in such a way that we might ourselves overcome the problem of sexual violence. And that's where my critique of consent comes in, which is that, um, I mean, consent is an absolute given as far as I'm concerned. You know, consent is the bare minimum for sex and consent education is absolutely vital. But in some of the rhetoric around consent that that I was seeing a lot of in the wake of Me Too, I felt that there was this pressure yet again placed on women to say what they want and to be you know, to be very clear about what they want, and therefore also to be able to know what they want. And I don't think those things are made very possible by the sexual culture in which we live. So it's about worrying that um, the kind of injunctions on women both acknowledge the problem and deny it. I don't think people like complexity. I think they live it every day, and maybe that's also why they don't like it. Um, They want simplifications, or at least they tend to. And as we've seen in this discussion, they want simplification from sex as well. How would you or could we convince someone who feels this way that it's actually more satisfying to complicate sex? I think there are so many things that we do to navigate the risk of violence and to navigate our fear of sexual violence. And some of those things do involve a kind of simplification. They involve us um, defining ourselves in quite rigid ways, um, defining our sexual tastes in quite rigid ways, and being perhaps um, 
more simplistic in the way in which we relate to others sexually in terms of uh, you know what we what we say we want to do sexually those things make perfect sense to me as strategic responses to the world in which we live and i have absolutely no problem with how individual women make their choices to navigate that sexual risk what i'm really concerned about is that the the kind of discourse and the feminist rhetoric that we use to address sexual violence itself shouldn't make that mistake of simplification because i would really like it if we could live in a world where the complexity of sexual desire wasn't something that was used against us by men as it is you know in the book i talk about um pickup artists and the way in which they for instance inv- you know invoke the research that shows um you know that women have high sexual appetites but that they sometimes find it hard to express their sexual desire because of the sexual double standards pickup artists are all too happy to invoke that as a way to kind of try and coerce women or you know argue that they know actually that women do really want sex and to kind of bully women and override women's own autonomy so there's plenty of people who are really willing to use that material against us the question for me and it's really difficult and i don't claim to have a simple answer to it but is how can we reclaim that complexity and say you know our sexual desire is sometimes not very transparent to ourselves sometimes we're confused by it sometimes we want something and then we don't and sometimes then we switch around and we do again and how can we start from that without conceding to those who want to use that kind of uncertainty against us i feel like when i read this book the voice inside my head that was interrogating or pushing back because there's obviously a side to it that was fully um just fascinated and felt seen um and 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 was relatable but the counter argument i think i have this like stereotypical hetero male voice in my head that pushes back. And I don't think it's coming out of nowhere. I think I have, um, you know, straight, particularly white male friends who are uncomfortable in having this conversation because they feel immediately polarized as the enemy. And Mm -hmm. so they're less willing to actually participate in the conversation, which would be ideal, I think. And so With that in mind, on page 92, you say, but women's sexuality should not have to be immune to abuse in order for women to not be abused. And throughout the book, you remark a similar sentiment that it's not a woman's job to be assaultless to not be assaulted. How can we explain this argument while reaffirming that no one should be getting assaulted? Yeah, that's a really good question. You put it really well. I think um, I'm skeptical of narratives that... um, just enact a kind of simple reversal, right? So on the one hand, I'm saying that, you know, the burden shouldn't be on any of us to have a sexuality that can't be um, abused or exploited because actually sexuality is open to abuse because, you know, the, the experience of having sex and the experience of pleasure makes us vulnerable. But equally, I don't want to just flip that and say, therefore, you know, the problem is just about um, teaching men not to sexually assault women. I mean, obviously, men should not sexually assault women. The question is, why do men sexually assault women? And how could we try to, you know, include them in this in this effort without, you know, falling back on individualizing the risk on women? You know, are you being confident enough? Are you behaving in the right ways? And I, I do really feel that... Um, you know, one of the chapters is on vulnerability. And one of the issues is how we think about vulnerability. We think of women as quintessentially vulnerable, and we are statistically vulnerable to sexual violence. And, you know, women's socioeconomic status, their race, you know, all kinds of other things intersect um, with gender in order to make them much more susceptible to forms of violence and aggression. But I want to refuse the kind of the equation I think that we often make in our minds, which is that vulnerability itself is the problem. And part of what I want to do in the book is um, also suggest that uh, that we don't buy so readily the lie that men are not vulnerable, because I think that so much violence that comes from men is in fact 
rooted in their management of their own vulnerability. You know, vulnerability for men is so stigmatized, weakness, you know, failing, whether that's kind of socially or sexually, you know, sexual failure for men is almost the most humiliating thing, I think, for them. And so those norms of gender are affecting everyone. They're not just affecting sexual relations between men and women. They're affecting all of us in society. And they affect men's ability to experience pleasure too, I think. And also their ability just to withstand the kind of vagaries of psychological and sexual life, such that when things go wrong, they want to lash out at women. The book also addresses this heteromale concept of sexual entitlement, as you're sort of addressing how toxic masculinity fosters this idea that the ideal man would be one who is constantly, and I really like how you put it, like someone, one who is constantly acquiring sex, an argument that presupposes that they are sexual receivers and women are sexual gatekeepers. You argue that this eliminates sex as a type of pleasure that women might actively seek after themselves and instead frames it as something they can or cannot deliver. So there's a sort of, popularized idea in the ether that men always want sex, that their desire for sex lacks any complexity, meanwhile women are sexually fickle. How can we complicate male sexuality? Like, what do heterosexual men need to know or to hear in order to transgress this normalized view of their sexuality? And in brackets, I even have, like, should it be transgressed? I I don't really know. It's quite of a a complex question, but I wonder if you Mm -hmm. have thoughts there. Yeah, one of the things I sometimes think about is, um, you know, I talk a bit about Viagra in the book and, you know, this blockbuster drug that was licensed in 98 or 99, I can't quite remember. Um, But what was really interesting about Viagra was that, you know, it made Pfizer a ton of money. um, But the statistics about whether people re... um, What's the word? Retake up their prescriptions are very interesting. Like a lot of people did not come for a second prescription of Viagra. And there's lots of interesting research being done in how complicated it was for uh, individuals and couples to negotiate Viagra, not least because of a kind of increased pressure on women, you know, the sexual partners of the men taking Viagra to have sex. But perhaps also, I think, because um, it's possible that some of those men were realizing that the problems they were having weren't really to do with erections, right? Or they weren't just to do with erections. They were to do with something else, which is the relational quality of sex. And, you know, resolving a mechanical, physical problem is not the answer to, to everything. And, the, and you know, perhaps one's sexual unhappiness lies elsewhere. And I also think about um, the pickup artists that I talk, at, talk about in the book. I was really kind of shaped by this wonderful book by a sociologist called Rachel O'Neill, it's called seduction and she did this ethnographic research into pickup artists mostly in the uk and she went really in depth in the community and um did these incredible kind of immersive interviews with them and the feeling that i came away from reading that book that she i think evokes so well is a kind of um melancholy for men or certain men around sex so this kind of relentless pursuit of sex where sexual conquest it's sort of inflated and becomes, um, you know, conflated with success in other areas of life. So success in work, you know, being just being an achieving alpha male who will, you know, accrue capital, like sexual and social capital, such that they will attract women to them. And that this was work. This was really hard work. And, you know, they invested a lot of money, a lot of time in this process of being trained in how to seduce women and that some of them spoke about being really weary of it and really kind of um you know weighed upon by yet another form of sort of performance labor of masculinity and you know i mean judith butler's written about kind of you know gender melancholia and i think that it's it is really useful to think about heterosexuality especially as um you know a really overwhelming and heavy series of norms for both men and women that are about this ever-receding horizon of perfectibility that of course you're never going to reach and then of course your experience of sex is one inherently then of sort of disappointment and constant feelings of failure you know for women 
because, you know, we're never perfect enough. We're never sexy enough. We're never thin enough or whatever the pressures are. But for men too, because if so much is at stake in sex, if, it, if, if to have lots of successful sex is how to succeed as a man, then my God, if that sex doesn't go well or you can't get it, how existentially shattering. And that seems to me so painful. And I, you know, I, in the book, I try to tread this, you know, kind of tightrope where I want to be really clear that I do not think women should be individualized for sexual violence. And I'm pointing to the ways in which some of our really well-meaning rhetoric around consent effectively does that inadvertently. But really what I want to do is suggest that we should try to detach from this individualized conception of sexual responsibility and think about what these languages of gender are not making possible for any of us. And because everybody suffers from sexual violence, you know, the, the, the sexual violence that men, um, you know, distribute to men and women in the world and just that gendered violence of you're not enough of a man or, you know, homophobic violence or transphobic violence, trans women are incredibly vulnerable to male, male violence. So it's affecting everyone. That's the root, I think, of so many of these things. And wouldn't it be great if we could just shake loose some of that? But it's very, very difficult. Right. It's absolutely difficult and complex. So forgive me for being reductive right now. But I think a bit of what is being said is, you know, can we find a way for sex to um, carry some levity um, and not be this you know, all encompassing driving force, um, you know, across the board for all people. But that being said, sex is sex. I, I don't, I don't know if it's possible to make sex le matter less just by virtue of our species. And I don't know if that's a very cynical thought. Is it a cynical thought? I don't know that it's cynical. No, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Sex does matter to us hugely, partly because it is such an incredible vehicle for pleasure and pleasure is pleasure is you know what we sort of get out of bed in the morning for as well as you know getting into bed some of the time so i don't i don't think it's cynical and i and i do think it's genuinely different a uh, difficult um but i think you know the way the way i i would like to think about it is um you know use the word levity and i think that's right is if if sex can be an arena of play and exploration and mutual curiosity where, you know, we might encounter um, the kind of exciting and strange otherness of the other, which sometimes includes conflict, right? It includes different desires. I want something you don't want and vice versa. If we could try to experience that as a place of play, which I think does include vulnerability because it includes you know, the, the possibility of saying to somebody, I would like this, and them saying, oh, well, I, I don't want to do that, or I don't want to do it with you. So it is scary. But if we could try and open up that space of play, where vulnerability isn't humiliating, then I think what's, what's really rich and wonderful about what matters about sex, i.e., you know, abandon and adventure and enjoyment could be enhanced. But what's heavy about the importance of sex could maybe loosen a little bit because my my feeling is that you know for men and women alike we are so invested culturally in sex not just because it's pleasurable but because we pour all our hopes into it you know our psychological hopes our emotional yearning our social status all of those things and so then whether it works or not becomes so laden and there's a there's a philosopher called Rebecca Kukla who writes really interestingly about the notion of kind of invitation versus demand in sex. I think I quote her in the book and she talks about trying to, you know, change the language around sex where instead of, you know, some men kind of tending to experience sex as a demand that they, that must be satisfied, could it be reformulated as an invitation? And when you invite somebody to do something, there are certain norms around how they respond. They they can turn it down, but they, they're kind in the way that they turn it down. Whereas if somebody demands something of you, you might feel that you just need to reject them because you feel you experience it as invasive. And I think she's onto something there about 
trying to loosen that feeling of demand and refusal what if we what if we invited one another to sex that immediately would be more pleasurable <laughs> and the ability to be kind i think goes back to your argument about the limitations um you know straight men have when it comes to the pressures that are put on them with sex, if you can be kind, that means that you're not angered by rejection. You don't read it as an insult to your personhood or to your value mm -hmm. um, that perpetuates kindness. I think a really wonderful thing about this book, which I just really, really loved, um, is it does open up sort of an avenue for... Um, progress. I don't want to say solution because it's certainly not an easy question. Um, and it does so in, you know, a kind of popular understood way, especially with the works of like, I think, Esther Perel and, and popular um, mm. theorists like that. It, it, it distinguishes between sex and desire, or rather emphasizes the, the importance of desire when it comes to sex. So you go at length in the book to outline why sex cannot be defined by or limited to physiological responses, you know, and a really fun example that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> you point to a study that surveys the physical reactions from a male viewing erotic subjects versus a female viewing the same thing. And it's in fact, the female that is consistent in their erotic response, whereas the male can feel uncomfortable and stimmy depending on what they are viewing. And I think this reveals that sex is as much, if not more, a mental act rather than just a physically stimulating act, especially for women. And then I think the common response uh, from the public would sort of say, yeah, okay, so I hear you, so it's all about balance. But reading this book, I found myself wondering if it really is about balance or if a hierarchy is actually more helpful, you know, if erotic thought should precede physiological want like maybe instead of defining sex by our bodies we can define it mentally is this something is that possible i feel like all of my questions are yours is this possible <laughs> <laughs> i think that that research it is so fascinating and, and there was a lot of media kind of interest in it and um it's primarily associated with um, a researcher called Meredith Chivers, who, you know, herself is very careful to say that physiological response is not consent. It's not giving somebody permission. You know, if you're, if you're wet, it doesn't mean uh, you necessarily have agreed to have sex. And she, she's very nuanced on this stuff, but the take up of it in the media was, was very excitable. Um, and it, and it was very fascinated by this idea that, that women's bodies respond with physiological arousal to everything, you know, including animals having sex, whereas men it aligned with their stated sexual preference. And there's, you know, there's various ways to read that. Some, some of the readings of that is just that, you know, women, we're, you know, we're more perverse than men, like we're just up for, we're up for anything. And interestingly, pickup artists do invoke that research and kind of say, oh, women, women, they're crazy for sex. It's just that they have to say no to sex to save face, to not be slut shamed. And they're not entirely wrong about that, right? You know, women do manage their, their expressions of sexual desire because they know they can be slut shamed and not just slut shamed. They can be blamed in rape trials. And, you know, men can be exonerated through evidence that a woman is quote unquote promiscuous. So, Pickup artists aren't wrong about that. But of course, they use that to really worrying ends, which is to kind of give primacy to the body and to say that, um, you know, we can read somebody's desire from their body. That's very dangerous, in part because we know that um, victims of sexual assault can experience physical uh, arousal in response to sexual assault. They can also experience orgasm, which is a sign that you know, the body, we can't read things reliably off the body. The body is a physiological organism that does certain things, but that how we feel about sex is just as important, if not more, than our bodies. You know, countless women in research show that, you know, for example, it's, it's interesting with postmenopausal women. In, in lots of studies of postmenopausal women, there are problems with, you know, lubrication and just the hormonal changes in the body, but it doesn't necessarily equate to lack of pleasure or lack of sexual interest. Like the body and the self can detach or disarticulate in these really interesting ways. But the question is what we, what we do with that information. And my critique of the way in which, you know, some of the take up of this kind of research happens is that, um, 
we we want to imagine, I think, that we can study the sexual person as distinct from the culture. That you know, the, we can do these laboratory studies and get to some kind of truth about sexuality through lots of complicated measurements. But we are only ever sexual beings in a sexual culture. We can't study the human outside of the culture. And the culture is a culture that privileges male desire and pleasure, that shames women for their sexual desire while also demanding their sexual desire so that they keep themselves safe and that men don't misunderstand them. And those paradoxical conditions and the sexual violence that abounds, I think, makes it very difficult for women to know what they want and to express they want what they want. So I'm really skeptical of the investment that we pour into scientific research about women's bodies. And not least because, you know, what I what I feel in my body is just only half of the picture. What I what I feel in myself, my whole self, and about this particular relationship or about this particular sexual act is a whole complex picture that is always embodied and situated as well in relationship to others and the people around me. So I'm really curious about why we're, why we're so invested in reading the body. Were these questions initially running through your head in the wake of the Me Too movement? Because, you know, as an I as two people who identify as women, we were bombarded in that moment with news of our sexuality, of sexual violence. And I'm sort of wondering what your response to that bombardment was. I was really um, agitated by it, I think. You know, I was um, kind of fascinated and horrified, like a lot of people were, I think, by the unfolding Weinstein story. It was just it was just monstrous and kind of, you know, frightening and just extraordinary. And yet, of course, it was all so familiar. And, you know, we have seen so many analogous examples. And of course, I think also very telling that, you know, women of colour in the US have been trying to get justice from R. Kelly for a very long time. And not having anything like the resources and the interest in their stories as, you know, powerful white women in Hollywood. So, you know, these things, they they echo and they also reveal the kind of fault lines in our society. Um, but I found it very difficult because, you know, listening to the coverage and constantly, you know, the, as you say, this bombardment of stories, you know, you just switched on the radio or you looked at Twitter and, oh my God, again, again. Um, it made me remember things in my own past that were upsetting that I had actually forgotten about or, you know, only remembered very flickeringly. And so it, it felt dangerous. It felt like there were sort of traps all around that were very unsettling. Um, and I was also very kind of fascinated by the spectacle of it, by the way in which you know, there were there were interviewers who literally put microphones in front of women and said, have you been sexually assaulted live on the radio or whatever? Again, this sense that tell us your stories, you know, that, that I think the, the figure of the narrative and the, the, the story in feminist politics is so interesting. There's a wonderful book by Tanya Ceresia called Speaking Out that's about the politics of narrative in, in rape activism. And um the demand that we tell our stories is so double-edged because I think it's vital that women tell their stories if they want to tell them. But do those stories, um, are they listened to? Are they really heard? Who is listening and why are they listening? And some of the time we listen because it's a spectacle. We're fascinated by it. And, you know, especially in the case of Weinstein, it was so kind of horribly theatrical. It, it was hard to sort of tear yourself away from it. But that unsettles me because if we place so much emphasis on the narrative, are we forgetting to look at, you know, women's socioeconomic vulnerability to men on whom they're dependent, uh, immigration policies, or, you know, the detention system or the criminal justice system? Who do we listen to? Whose speech gets used? And ultimately, what does it serve? If the burden is always on women to speak, doesn't that just make us, again, the bearers of 
the ethical problems that as a society we should be, if we really care about Weinstein, we should be caring as much about vulnerable women in factories as we do about glamorous stars. Unsettled was my feeling too, I think in the wake of the bombardment. Um, I want to ask you about the victimization of women in the general Me Too conversation. This is an important conversation. I think we both agree. But I think, unfortunately, the dialogue has largely focused on women's sexual pain rather than their pleasures, sexual pleasures. You know, girls are always susceptible to violence. And while I don't think it's a conscious intent of of the origin of the social conversation, I do think it's unfortunately largely and in part because of the theatrics that you point out and how it was received and how the message is being sent out, it's unfortunately largely limited women as being powerless. And so, and that makes, unsettles me. How do we address the rampant sexual abuse of women without victimizing them? I think that is such a big question. And I think I quote, um, feminist writer and I never know how to pronounce her name and Snittow and Snittov I'm not sure how she pronounces it but she in an interview looking back on her long kind of decades of activism and feminism she says you know how do we draw attention to sexual violence without scaring the hell out of ourselves and I think about this all the time you know in my own writing and my own thinking focusing on sexual violence thinking about um these kind of questions how does that interact with um a desire to keep women in their place you know how how the increasing awareness about sexual violence can sometimes act as a warning to them and as a mechanism for protecting women but also to keep them small and to discourage them from traveling on their own or taking risks and that is an extremely painful and complicated thing i think for a lot of women again partly because if something goes wrong it's us who get blamed. <laughs> so I I really don't know quite how to answer that question, but I think it's it's so important to try and keep several things in mind at once, you know, to to try to really keep the complexity inside ourselves, which is that women are disproportionately subject to sexual violence and things don't tend to go well for them when they try to get recourse for that violence. However, we don't want to let the facts of sexual violence and this kind of overloading of narrative about how susceptible we are to it, to curtail our our possibilities for pleasure in life. And I feel like I will always defend anybody's um, pursuit of pleasure even if that places them at risk, which inevitably it will, because we live in a violent world. And I think, you know, you talk about girls and young women, and I think it's such a it's such an issue when you think about, you know, teenage girls and all the kind of weight of hope and sort of fetishization of, you know, female youth that is placed on them in often really awful ways. But, you know, I remember what it was like to be a teenage girl I thought about sex all the time. I was I was so keen to explore this world. I was so interested in it. And I, I think I often put myself in risky situations. But I was pursuing joy and adventure. And I think that is fine. I, th- I mean, in the sense that girls have a right to do that too. And I think we have to be really careful that, you know, in imagining really good sexual sex education and in designing good sex education and you know a lot of this does exist it's really important to allow for young women and girls sexual desire but that really frightens us because then we think we're putting young girls at risk but i think that you know one of the one of the reasons especially perhaps in the us that consent has come to kind of bear the weight of all these conversations is precisely because sex education itself is so fraught in the US. Um, But because, especially because it's hard to talk about pleasure. But in fact, I think the only way we're going to get a proper sexual ethics and a better sexual culture is if we talk to young girls early about pleasure. Because that's not 
that's what they're taught not to expect, right? Which is why you get women of all ages resigned to really unpleasant, painful sex. Whereas if we taught girls that they too deserve joy and sensation, then perhaps the culture would change. I think you've touched on something really important in talking about pleasure, which is that word risk, right? And that what is pleasurable is risky or can be at the very least. And the way that this gets complicated with sex is I think we're at a time that wishes to have clear power dynamics laid out in sex, evenly distributed, egalitarian, but the actual act of risk and not even just something like uh, like an illicit affair or whatever, even if it's just a partner your age, your long-term relationship, even if it's the most ideal circumstances, there is ideally an element of pleasure derived from this risk, especially from a risk of vulnerability. And so I guess I want to know how to communicate to the public that it is okay for sex to be risky. Like women don't need to know, always know what they want, but do they always need to want something that is without risk, right? Um, I think these are the questions that your book raises wonderfully. But I also wanna talk about um, perversity. Um, You distinguish between desire and sex in the book, and I think that's fundamental, as I've said. When you're asking for us to complicate female sexuality, Does this in a way ask to permit female perversity? Like, talk to me about a space where a woman can be permitted to want something perverse. And I don't mean, like, again, an illicit affair or infidelity. I mean the kind of perversity that men are not only allowed, but kind of comically expected to to inhabit. I'm asking this with the understanding also that sex is inherently perverse. It's natural, but it is also perverse. So how do we carve out the space where women are permitted in that perversity? Or is that going like three steps back? Oh, I think it's vital. I think um, one of the key rights that women should have and that we have not been given is the right to be perverse. Because, yeah, sexuality is perverse. Desire is perverse. And one of the things that disturbs me so much is um, the kind of pushing away, like the keeping at bay, in fact, of the darkness in a way that surrounds sex, especially given women's um, haunting bisexual violence. So given the fact that, you know, sexual violence is all around us and also that our, that we are flooded with representations of it. So it's not just that as a, you know, as a girl growing up, you become aware of the risks that there are and you, you know, experience them. It's also that so many films and TV programs and books, and, you know, this may be changing, but I think it's still quite pronounced. So many of our cultural products remind us of the violence that is out there. And they, they are about you know, reinscribing this kind of individual risk management approach. They are warnings. They're warnings that if you enjoy yourself too much, some bad stuff is going to happen to you. So I think women are constantly reminded of the specter of violence and death. Then what happens is that we are told by a kind of uh, consent rhetoric that, you know, can be a little unthinking at times, that we have to have this very positive relationship to sex. We have to be confident and enthusiastic. Um, And we have to do, we have to be that partly because we want to be good feminists, right? Because in the sort of last few decades of feminism, there has been this strand, which is that, you know, you don't want to be the victim. You don't want to be vulnerable. You don't want to be whiny and complainy. You want to be able to like assert what you want, push back against pushy men and pursue sex yourself, you know, be a good sex positive feminist. So that to me is requiring women in the very moment when they are the most vulnerable, because sex is a very vulnerable experience, to set aside that specter of violence and death that we have been literally been taught and kind of schooled in every other minute of our waking lives. And by extension, 
I think that also turns into this kind of phobia about women trying to grapple with some of that violence and death in their sexuality themselves. So, you know, there's a long history of thinking about sexuality and orgasm as a form of kind of death, you know, of ego death or of, you know, the, the kind of obliteration of consciousness or something. But sex is also a way to manage fear, I think. And it's a way to kind of compulsively repeat things in our past, whether that's sexual trauma or whether it's, you know, family dynamics. I mean, this is where I, you know, I do think quite psychoanalytically about this. And I think that can be actually really useful for women, even though it's been quite vilified in lots of strands of the history of feminism. But, you know, if women have a sexuality, for instance, that is kind of grappling with, um, you know, constraint or non-consent or, you know, fantasies of kind of domination or, you know, we might call it kink as shorthand. Women are really vilified for that in the kind of public realm. Um, and men also abuse that. You see that in the kind of um, the defense, the rough sex defense that, you know, there's lots of talk about at the moment in Britain. I don't, I'm not so sure about in the US, but, you know, men who essentially are physically violent to women in sex and then say, oh, it was kink gone wrong. All of this, I think, creates a kind of denial of the fact that, of course, sex is a way to try to um, interact with our fears about vulnerability and, and release and pleasure. And sometimes, you know, for some people, that takes the form of literally enacting it, you know, enjoying being tied up or, or enjoying tying someone else up. You know, I think sex is really profoundly about death all the time. But that is something that is very, very difficult to talk about and that women get sort of stigmatized for, which I find just, you know, like a double injury and insult. Because you tell, you, you know, I spent my whole life thinking about all the kind of violence and death that is on my TV screen and that is lying in wait potentially out there because of this violent world that we live in. And then you're telling me that my sexuality has to be this kind of um, just purely kind of jolly, positive, confident space. No, sex is about trying to address the kind of deep, difficult things in ourselves. And Everyone should have the right to, to try to process those things as long as they are doing so consensually and respectfully with their sexual partners. So it's, a, you know, I, I want to make a plea for sex remaining a dark and complicated space because, of course, it is. How else could it not be? <laughs> Well, so on page 30, you say the attachment to consent as the overarching framework for thinking about good and bad sex amounts to holding on to the fantasy of liberalism, in which, as Emily A. Owens puts it, equality simply exists. Power dynamics are arguably an integral aspect to sexual pleasure. Darkness and lightness, that interplay, is arguably an integral aspect to sex and vulnerability for both or many parties. And I'm guessing... I'm asking if we even want sex to be power dynamic free, would it still be sex if it was utopian and egalitarian? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, so in that section of the book, when I'm when I quote the wonderful scholar Emily um, Owens, she's sort of talking about, um, you know, the way in which the, the fantasy of consent as being the place where we can uh, sort of solve all the problems of sexual culture is problematic because it um, it sometimes just wishfully overlooks the fact that power imbalances exist and she and she talks a lot about the relationship between race and sexuality in really beautiful ways she's an amazing writer um and so you know part part of my argument is that um consent you know is an absolute given and the law about consent should be got right but if we invest too much hope in the legal concept of consent, we're actually forgetting that there is this area of sex which um, may fall short of being assault, but which is about abuses of power and the exploitation of imbalances of power. So there's lots of sex that I think, you know, would be legally classified as consensual, but that leaves women feeling absolutely kind of uh, taken advantage of and undermined and bullied because, you know, often because of their socioeconomic vulnerability or because of domestic violence, you know, women agree to sex all the time that they don't want to have. And that that's a huge political problem. But as you say, you raise this question of, you know, is does good sex have to be devoid of 
power imbalances. And my take on that is that, um, you know, if sex is about the encounter between one and another person or other other people, there's always going to be a kind of negotiation because you are different people <laughs> and you have different histories, you have different desires, you have different hopes and different vulnerabilities. And it will always be a kind of attempt to find a way through that difference and the encounter with the other, which is, you know, the encounter with the other is profoundly um, existential and often very destabilizing. And in, and in some, for some people, it brings out, you know, a tremendous amount of hostility and, and then the need to dominate the other and override the other's wishes. And obviously that's a form of wrestling with power that, you know, <laughs> ideally wouldn't happen. But mm. I think, I, I don't really, I mean, I think I say at the end of the book, I don't really believe there's a world which is devoid of those negotiations of power just because we come to one another and to the people in our lives with hopes and desires. We, we, you know, we, we're always projecting our own desires into the other. And then we have to deal with the fact that they, they do that to us too. <laughs> and so there is always the potential for conflict and misunderstanding, I think. And that, that is part of what, you know, we should ideally teach people to, to be able to negotiate well. That's, you know, it's not a ground for saying, oh, there's always going to be manipulation or abuses of power. No, but it's, it's a ground for saying the encounter with the other is pr profoundly difficult. And that's where, you know, maybe where good sex could emerge is if we could try to understand better what we bring to our relationship with the other, what we bring from, a, from our culture and from our individual history and how to explore that space without trying to kind of crush the other's desire or even to just completely submit to the other's desire. How could we try to have a conversation about how those two things might interact in a way that could be joyful? <laughs> Understanding that vulnerability is key to allowing yourself to be open to the possibility of both pleasure and pain. So if you want to experience joy, you need to teeter on that line that also opens you up to the possibility of pain. On page 96, you say, sex, if we are lucky, is not just exciting and satisfying. It also touches on our deepest fears. I want to say it again. Sex, if we are lucky, is not just exciting and satisfying. It also touches on our deepest fears, our deepest pains. Does sex always have to be good? Should it be? That's such a great question. <laughs> that's such a great question. It's the, it's the, you know, I closed your book and that's, that's what was, that's, that's what I was asking. I love that question. I mean, of course, you know, the obvious answer is like sex, it, it should always be good. We should always come away from sex feeling amazing and great and fulfilled. Of course, that is not going to be true. And I, and not just, I think, in a sort of resignation to, to the difficulty and pain of sex. No, but also because um, sex does many things for us. You know, it, it does things in our relationships. It, it, it does things for the people we love. Sometimes people do, um, you know, give sex to their partner. I mean, I'm very reluctant to use that, that turn of phrase, actually. But, you know, sometimes you don't want sex in that kind of like, oh, my God, I really want sex. And, you know, the, the thing I want to do most right now is to have sex. Sometimes you come around to sex or sometimes you, um, you have a sexual experience that isn't great in some ways, but that might have fulfilled some other need in other ways. And, I don't, I don't want to dismiss that or characterize that as inherently bad. I think that, you know, sex is a kind of, um, it's a physical act, but it's also, you know, a psychological and an emotional act. And we're doing something very, very complex when we enter into sexual relations. And so I, I am skeptical of the kind of, you know, the portrayal of sex that, that happens like a lot in women's magazines, which is like, okay, your aim is to have the best sex of your life where like you reach, you know, you have 10 successive orgasms and everything is completely amazing. I think that is its own, you know, obviously that's its own kind of burden. The idea that sex has to be kind of mind blowing every time. So I want to kind of, you know, both like express a sort of utopian 
wish for like more pleasure because you know women really don't have enough pleasure I think you know the research on that is staggering and it's very upsetting like the low bar you know that women have in terms of expectations for sex it's and the difficult experiences they have you know the high rates of sexual pain and it's really disheartening so on the one hand I want to say you know just more pleasure more great sex but I do think part of the problem is this investment in sex as the be-all and end-all and you know it's it's paradoxical sometimes you can have sex that is like physically great but leaves you feeling empty and dead inside and sometimes you can have sex that's like oh yeah, that was nice. That was nice. But actually, it felt kind of special in other ways. And I think we do, we do really need a space for like ambivalent experiences of sex, because human life is ambivalent. And if we constantly insist on everything being sort of perfectible, I don't, I don't think that really helps us less of an emphasis on positivity and sex positivity yeah you know sarah ahmed the feminist and queer um theorist she she says sometimes the repetition of good sentiment feels oppressive and she says that in relation to um to like diversity initiatives in the workplace and you know sort of critical race theory that she writes but but she writes really beautifully about happiness and this injunction to happiness and to kind of constant positive experience, I think, you know, not only denies the fact that a lot of human experience is negative and obviously, you know, we don't want to aim for negative experience, but life is riddled with uh, sadness, with disappointment, with anxiety, and sometimes moving into that space, you know, that's why I really love Leo Bassani's work, you know, the, um, the queer theorist where he's sort of he tries to counter in this landmark essay from years ago now counter that sort of um, association of sex with power and kind of assertion and positivity and he kind of goes into the dark side of sex and the you know what we associate with a negative experience which is kind of powerlessness and and um, you know abandonment and and loss of self but those experiences are a really important part of being a person and they're also pleasurable. That's also where the pleasure lies is the boundary confusion of sex and the disorientation of sex. And of course, you know, it's such a fine line that that space is like, it's a, just a tiny millimeter that can flip sex from being a wonderful experience to it being really anxiety provoking and really distressing. But that is something I think we have to contend with instead of denying that it's the case. Thank you so much, Catherine. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your reading it so carefully and your great questions. It was my pleasure. Um, the book is out, available at St. Henry Books. Check it out. Thank you. Thank you.